Hey everybody, welcome back to Off the Couch, where we take a closer look at the wide, weird, and wonderful world of running. I'm your host, Jonathan Ellsworth. I am also the founder of Blister, and you can check out everything we're doing and reviewing over at blisterreview.com. Off the Couch is presented by the CBG Trails app, which is the only complete trail map app of Crested Butte and the Gunnison Valley, Colorado. So download the app today and start exploring. This past weekend, my Off the Couch co-host, Brendan Leonard, ran and completed the Bighorn Trail 100-mile endurance run. The race takes place primarily on technical single track through remote wilderness, and a common characteristic of the race is mud. Signing up for this race requires a lot of nerve. Showing up to the start line isn't of itself quite an act of courage, and completing the race is a huge accomplishment. It also explains why, just a couple days after the race, Brendan sounds a bit tired. If it were me, I would probably still be holed up at one of the aid stations. Anyway, Brendan and I talk about why he decided to run the Bighorn 100, how he prepared, the highs and lows of the experience, dealing with the race's signature mud, his advice for anyone thinking of running a 100, and then there's the big question, whether or not Brendan plans on running another 100 miler. And just a heads up, there is a bit of adult language in this episode, but once you hear what triggered the expletives, if you have any compassion in your heart whatsoever, you will have some very deep and real sympathy for the runner's situation. And so here it is, my conversation with one understandably worn out Brendan Leonard. Brendan, how are you today? I feel fine. How are you, Jonathan? <laughs> I feel great, but I have, I think, better reasons to feel great. I mean, I guess you didn't say you feel great. You said you feel fine. But that in and of itself is still an impressive fact to me, given that you just completed the Bighorn 100. If you're anything like me, which I guess you are not, it's like the next day, but then really the two days out and three days out when the crushing soreness of things comes in. Is this not your uh, experience? I had a little muscle soreness the day after, but I'm generally pretty fine. I just feel like I shouldn't I shouldn't run for a few days because I feel like something might break. I don't know. Just you like feel like it. You definitely need to recover and sleep, and I'm not, I haven't been sleeping that well. So, post race, yeah, just because I have a lot of stuff to do. When I came back, I slept like 11 hours the night after the race, and then wow, after that, I'm just like trying to get a bunch of things done before I leave town for two weeks. What do you leave in town for for two weeks? I have a writing workshop on, on the Salmon River with the Free Flow Institute, and I'm teaching it, so I really have to prepare because I've never taught anything before. Is that true that you've never taught anything before? That seems really hard for me to believe. I think, I guess I've taught uh, city kids to backpack a little bit, but not really. Yeah, I mean, I'm unfamiliar with any sort of teaching methods. So I'm kind of going into this like, what do I know? What would I like to have known when I was just starting as a writer? And let's make this last for two two-hour sessions for six days. So it's a lot. And I'm like doing all these like brain dumps and making handouts and we'll see. This is a big experiment and I really hope the people in the workshop get out of it what they want. But 
we asked the students in a survey beforehand what they want to get out of it. And it's sort of wide ranging. And I'm kind of like, wow, uh, okay. You know, like there are, you know, there's like writing sort of techniques and I'm trying to focus a little bit on some of that, but a lot of it is just trying to motivate people to understand that they can write and they should just do it. You know, there's different ways that, to do that, but, um, that's sort of my strength, like just a just a dipshit who won't stop trying. Um, and then you get a career, I guess. So I think we have the title of this episode, uh, talking to the dipshit who just won't stop trying. So (laughs) thanks for that. Speaking of doing things, I'm still blown away, man. So you just completed the Bighorn 100 and I'm really proud of you for that. Well, thank you. Like a hundred some other people did too, though. So, and many, many, many of them were faster than me. <laughs> but I don't co-host a podcast with them. So I'm, I'm like, the truth is I am less proud of them. But um, this is a remarkable thing. So this is kind of a bit of a recap um, and a bit of me trying to figure you out. So tell us about what is this Bighorn Trail 100 mile endurance race? So basically it's, um, well, it's in Northern Wyoming and the Bighorn Mountains, which are the actual, I was looking this up on the way there, are the setting for Brokeback Mountain. The, the movie Brokeback Mountain is set in Riverton, which is an actual town, but it's on the complete other side of the Bighorn Mountains. So Sheridan is the town sort of at the base of the Bighorns where this, all the stuff takes place. But I think it was 27 years ago, um, there was a proposed power project in the Bighorns, which would have flooded a significant portion of them in order to provide hydroelectric power to California. And some local folks who love the Bighorns decided we're going to draw attention to this area um, and show why it should not have a hydroelectric project in it. Um, so they started doing a 50-mile race and I think a 50K and a 30K at that time. And then they started doing the 100-mile race in 2002. So this would be the 18th year they did the 100-mile race. And um, almost the entire race staff is women, which is, I guess, sort of rare in the ultra-running community. Um, but they they put on an awesome event. The aid stations are great. The volunteers are great. The scenery is absolutely beautiful. It can be, I guess, in some years really hot, which would have made it very, very hard for me to finish. I don't really do well in the heat. Um, and then other years, or than the same years, it can be pretty muddy. And apparently it's sort of famous for the mud. Um, a couple of years ago, I think the race, I think it was 2017, it was going pretty well. And then this huge rainstorm dumped down in the mountains and just turned everything into a slip and slide. And that's sort of the two, I think, big things that happen um, that are that make it difficult for people. Um, but, you know, I think... Almost 300 people started this year, and I think it's a pretty popular race. There are people from all over the country. I think there's several international people there. Somehow people have heard of it. I heard of it like four or five years ago before I was doing ultra running events at all, and it was a friend of mine did his, he's, who's a running photographer. It was his first 100-mile race, and a lot of people say it's a good first 100. I, I've I've read that or heard that somewhere, and I don't know if I would agree with that. Yeah, why? Um, yeah, I don't know why. It's, I mean, it's beautiful. It's a pretty decently forgiving cutoff. Normally the cutoff is 34 hours, which means you have to 
average like 2.93 miles per hour or something like that. So it's, it's doable. Um, and it's not super high elevation. So the high point is about 9,000 feet. There's plenty of aid stations. I think the furthest you go between aid stations is seven miles. The, the volunteers who staff the aid stations are just phenomenal. Like, uh, I don't know. That's not a very descriptive word to put that, but everybody's in a great mood. Everybody is dialed. Everybody is getting you your stuff. Um, fantastic. In this year, they had problems getting into the aid stations. So normally they're able to access a lot of them via like ATV or truck. So you can, I mean, then you have really cushy situations, but this year it had to be, a lot of people had to backpack stuff in. So they were, I guess they were a little Spartan in compared to years past, but I don't, I don't really, didn't really notice. Um, I sort of carried most of my food knowing that they might not have a ton of stuff um, and just some of the lesser cush aid stations that I would just kind of bust through and get water and keep keep moving. They had given you that heads up? Yeah. They said, you know, like, FYI, the search and rescue has 100 volunteers out during the race and to assist with it and just in case something happens. And they, the search and rescue said, you know, look, everybody has to take warm clothing between miles 30 and 66. And that's when you're going up high and it's super muddy. There was actually snow. You post hold through a little bit and they, they wanted everybody to have extra clothing just in case it took them a long time to get to someone. If you, I don't know if you snapped your ankle, you were going to be there for a while in the cold. So that was the, that was the big thing. It was mandatory gear. Um, that you had to take with you from mile 30 to 66, which is which is something they do in like the UTMB a lot too, where it's like mandatory cold weather kit. And but yeah, it was it was since they were unable to access stuff, it was sort of they let you know that and take this stuff with you. And also they gave everybody an extra hour to finish the race this year. So it was a 35 hour cutoff. They started it an hour earlier than normal, which is that's that's stuff you really. <laughs> the week before the race, you're not really psyched to hear that. I'm like, oh, good. Um, and I don't know if it was muddier than years past or just as muddy or less. I don't know. But it was like, it was a battle for a lot of it. So, but yeah, they let you know that. And they moved the pre-race meeting from the morning of the race to the night before the race to let you know. So backing up just a sec, you found out about this race four or five years ago. When did you first think, like, seriously, like, I, maybe I'll actually try that race? Like last year, I was, I was thinking, oh, I want to do another 100 next year. And it's six hours from my house. It's in June. So, like, my entire summer would not be taken up training for it, which is good. And I had heard, I don't know, generally just hear good things about it. And I think that's probably the best uh, reason to try a race, you know, if, if you kind of have heard about the race and people enjoy it. It's like, okay, that that's good. The word of mouth is really, really good for the bighorn for sure. People, people totally dig it. So the aspect you've already said that mud commonly is a factor here. Did you go in in your preparation thinking hard about that just in terms of what gear you were bringing, shoes you were using, or were you just like, I don't know, I was treating it like the other races you've done? I mean, I, I was just thought, well, what can I do? And I definitely was going to take poles for the whole race because of because of the mud and also because I just like to use poles when going uphill and for 100 miles, they help. 
and then just had a few pairs of socks to change into and an extra pair of shoes. Yeah, like that's all you can really do. I, In retrospect, I maybe would have worn some running gaiters, which I've never worn, but I think that might have helped a little bit. But man, it was... I don't know if there's anything you could do at certain points. So yeah, that was that was all I did. And I'm sure there's other shoes that would have been maybe better. I don't know. For mud. Like I I really I would have had to have a pair of like football cleats to maybe. Maybe that would have worked. I don't know. But did you get to that point where you were just fully caked up and you're like, yeah, well now I'm just on ice skates? Oh yeah. It was like I f- I described it as wearing penny loafers hiking in the snow. Like and you would just, you'd be okay for a couple minutes. And then all of a sudden you'd be slip sliding downhill and at mile, let's see, 43 and a half, you hit the last aid station before the turn, uh, second to last aid station before the turnaround. So mile 48, you turn around and you go back and you do the entire course in reverse. And, uh, that's when the mud started was 43 and a half. So you have four and a half miles uphill to the turnaround and then you turn around and come back down and it had been raining. So I was soaked through a very light rain jacket and I was in shorts and my gloves were wet. So I'm already going, oh boy, I might, you know, sort of be at risk of hypothermia. I had one more layer I could put on, but I'm going up and it's, you just for four and a half miles for the majority of it is just a quagmire. You know, you're just like sliding, your, your foot is sinking into, at times you just like, you've totally given up on not saturating your feet because it's impossible. There's literally no route you can take to keep your feet dry. And I went up, you know, got to the 48 mile aid station was like, well, that sucked. Sat down for five minutes, had a quesadilla, put on another layer, turned around and started going downhill. And so I'm at mile 51 and I'm just, okay, I'm moving. Okay. I'm soaked. I'm like not really having the best time of my life. And you're running into all the people who are still coming uphill. And so you're all kind of trying to find the best route down. I'm, I, at some point I just slipped and just about fell, you know, like almost touched my hand to the ground as I'm going down the steep muddy section. And I'm just going to myself, fuck, you know, man, this is like the 30th time I've slipped. And, you know, I can't believe I don't have a hernia at this point because of all of this. And this lady is coming uphill and she, she's about 15 feet away from me and she just falls in the mud like and she didn't like fall face first and like get completely coated but she was just it was you know I don't know how many times she had fallen but she fell and like picked herself up and she just goes Jesus Christ goddamn shit motherfucker fuck or something something to that effect and I was like oh my god like I feel you. And, and I just, I said, I was, I couldn't get like, I wasn't fast enough to help her up or anything, but I said, look, I don't want to be a downer, but there's, there's more, there's a lot more of that ahead. And, and she didn't say anything. She just walked right by me. And I was like, okay, well, but it like, that was the embodiment of how, how much this, how this felt, you know, because you, you slog through four miles of mud. And at one point I post hold into a puddle that was underneath some snow. So the snow, of course, made the puddle about 32.1 degrees and soaked both shoes immediately. And I'm in shorts and it's, I'm getting to the high point of the race and it's getting cold. I mean, I'm sure it got down below 40. And I, for about 10 seconds, I was walking forward with my feet freezing going, boy, that might've been the end right there. I don't know if I can, cause I didn't have a drop bag or anything at the 48 mile aid station. And I just fortunately kept moving and stayed warm enough, but 
But yeah, you're going uphill through this thing and then you hit, you go to this aid station and you get in the tent and it's warm and they have heaters going, people bringing you food and you're like, wow, I got to go down through all that shit. And I thought, oh, it's all downhill. It'll be fine. And it sucked worse going downhill for me. Um, but eventually you get through it. But, and of course it rained more the next day and everything got soaked and, you know, there's, there's definitely more muddy sections and it was like, that's, yeah, that's the theme of the race, I think, is mud. First of all, I think that if I'd hit that warm aid station, my reaction would have just been, well, this is my new home till like mid-August. Yeah. I'll come out when it's real warm and hopefully the mud is gone and uh, see you guys in a couple months. But it's, you think about that and you're like, I guess at mile 48, I'm, I don't, I get super miserable at, at around mile 70 in these, in my experience, <laughs> this, this is my third one. And you think, oh, I could just quit right now at some of these aid stations. But logistically to get out of there, you would probably have to sit for quite a while. And you're not like, you're not laying down in a queen size bed with a duvet over you. You're like sitting in a camp chair and you're just like, if, if between sitting here for two to five hours waiting for a ride or whatever, and just keep moving, I'm just going to keep moving, you know, like it's, it's less frustrating. So you definitely think about it. And some of that stuff, like some of the things I, I don't go sit by the fire ever because they always have a fire going at the night in the night at a lot of these aid stations. And you're like, Oh God, the fire's so warm and you can sit down and like eat ramen and like drink coffee and like, it's super comfortable. And I just know that's just gonna, that's gonna ruin your race. Like it's so hard to get up from those things. And I'm not like that confident I'm ever going to finish within the cutoff anyway. And if I sit down by a fire for a half an hour, ooh, you know, so, but yeah, it's totally, that's totally tempting. And a lot of people did uh, drop at that aid station <laughs> because it's, I mean, it sucks and, like to turn around and like, you really got to want to do it or, or you're like, you know, and, and I think, I don't know, people may have gotten injured going up the, the mud. I don't know. I, I did fine, but. Yeah, I, I thought, wow, I can't believe all my knee ligaments are still attached at this point. So we're roughly kind of halfway through this race. Talk to me about the second half of this thing, the last 50 or so. Yeah, so I had my wife, Hillary, and my friend Jason were at the 30-mile aid station and the 66-mile aid station, which are the same aid station. So I saw them at 30 miles and I was actually pretty fast at that point to the point where I should probably slow down a little bit because I starting to get a headache and um, sweating profusely because it was hot. And so I'm coming back down. And I, I, this is like people pleasing Midwesterner. I like told them, I'm like, I don't know, earliest I would be back would be, I think, 10 and a half hours from when I saw them at mile 30. I was like 36 miles, boy. I mean, I would definitely don't get up before three o'clock in the morning. And uh, so the whole time I'm like, oh God, they're going to be waiting for me. I need to go fast. And, uh, and you know, pretty, pretty shortly after leaving the 48 mile aid station, I'm starting to do the math in my head and like, you're not going to make it down there. They're going to be waiting for an hour, two hours maybe. And so I'm trying to hustle and it's a weird sort of thing where you're sort of leapfrogging people and I would pass people who are going downhill because they were running just a little slower than me or whatever. And then oh, like my headlamp would die. 
So I'd have to stop and like try to find my other headlamp that I had and then they would pass me and then I'm like, then I feel like a jerk trying to pass them again because I just, you know, whatever. And so I would run behind people or like skip past them at an aid station or whatever. And um, so you're just trying to go as fast as you can downhill. But again, it's muddy and um, not so much the fact that the mud is like, it's not pulling your shoes off, slowing you down, but you can't really bound downhill confidently in it or at least I can't I don't know I I imagine the people who finish the race in like 22 hours can but I you know you're kind of being self-preservation and trying to keep a pace that as fast as you can go but it's pretty frustrating because you're just watching the time go by and like wow I'm gonna be this is gonna take me you know I think that second the 36 miles took me almost 12 and a half hours so you can imagine how slow that feels, you know, um, even though like, I'm trying to run every time it's the, the course is flat or downhill, but it's a gradual 15 mile climb really. Um, so I'm, you know, doing that and you're just sort of in your own head for a really long time. Like, and the sun, you know, it's dark. Um, there was a little lightning, I guess it was storming downhill for me. It, this is, people always say the night is the worst part of the hundred mile races. And I think, I think when the sun comes up, I start to get really depressed because I know I'm going to be out there for another at least 12 hours. And maybe if you're faster, it's like this beacon of hope and you're like, wow, okay, cool. I'm four, four hours from the finish or two hours from the finish. And if you're, if you're me, you're going, holy shit, I still have 34 (laughs) miles to go. And the sun just came up. So that's depressing. But mile 66, uh, I, Jason, my friend, uh, paced me for the last 34 miles. And, uh, so I, you know, sat down, ate a, ate a donut, you know, had some food, uh, took off my socks, washed off my feet with like wet wipes to try to get all the, the mud and gunk out of them. Changed shoes at that point. Cause my shoes were completely caked in mud, like hundred percent over the top, like everything bottom top, all this, the shoelaces, you know? So I'm like, you know what? It can't hurt to just put on some new shoes that do not have mud inside them. Cause I think like even just a little piece of a rock that's in there over many, many miles will turn into a blister. So I changed socks, changed shoes. At this point I've been, I've been wearing these toe socks where each toe has a little pocket basically. And I've been wearing them to train because the last race I did, I got horrible blisters from water and a friend said, you might want to try these socks. And I said, Oh, okay, great. I'll and they, they've been working great, but I blew through the big toes on the first pair by mile 30. Like I pulled my shoes off and was like, oh, okay, those are done. Put on a new pair. I have now at mile 66 blown through a second pair of these socks. So I don't know, they're like eight bucks a piece, 10 bucks a piece or something like that. And I'm like, wow, this is expensive. <laughs> these things are basically disposable. So I put on the third pair of socks and, and Jason and I take off about 5.55. So I'm in that aid station for 25 minutes trying to eat. And I have a bunch of food and water with me. And we just start immediately climbing up really steep uphill. Um, sort of the last big climb of the race is, I guess, mile 66. It's some rolling terrain, but you're still climbing through up till mile 82, I think. So sun comes up and, you know, he and he and I are chatting or whatever. And and this is when I start to get really miserable. I start to get really tired and um, you just, your motivation to run is pretty low. And that's what I sort of tell him. You're like, we discussed this before the race, you know? So you ha- you have to have the person who knows what they want before the race 
and you have to tell your friends or your crew that so that they will, you know, be able to interact with uh, three-year-old you in a way that takes care of you. And it's like, so I give them a list, like make me change my socks, feed me a banana, make sure I eat it, make me drink this protein drink, you know, and then make sure I take off with these three types of food, like, you know, shot blocks, uh, waffles and two slices of pizza in my, in my vest. So I will eat that, you know? And, uh, so all he has to do is make sure I eat, make sure we run downhills as much as possible and do not let me sit down at aid stations. Um, which we, I negotiated to let, have him let me sit down for five minutes at two different aid stations. (laughs) Because I was just down in the dumps so bad, um, and that's that's all you do. And it's like, this is tough love. So make me make me do these things. And so we take off, and we're, you know, we're mostly hiking, running into some other people who are, you know, like they're going to finish around the same time we are. But you're just, it's so slow, and it's such a testament to your friends' patience when they're when they say, yeah, I'll pace you, because it's like, hey, do you want to go for a 34 mile run where the fastest I can run is like. I don't even know. I looked at my Strava and it was like, maybe I ran 14 minute miles at one point, but you're so slow. Cause you just like, you can't extend your legs and you're just not motivated. And so Jason made me run a bunch and we had a great time. The sun comes up eventually and it starts to get hot and they have three other races that start on the second day of the 100. So they have a 50 mile, a 32 mile and an 18 mile. So all these people start filtering onto oh, the course. No. Like you, you're just popping in there, which is fine. You know, all like, these like fresh runners though, uh, I would have been stabbing them with those poles. It's well, it's only the only issue you ever have is when you get to an aid station and there's like 10 people there and they all have just like run like six miles and you're out there like, God damn it. Just let me get to the water. I've been out here for 24 (laughs) hours. Um, But if you were faster, you wouldn't have that problem. But for the most part, people are like, there seemed to be sort of this reverence for the 100 mile idiots, you know, where people would go by you and say, hey, congratulations. And you're like, dude, I got eight hours left. You know, like, thank you. Uh, But, you know, and so you get to chat with those people and everybody's doing something hard for sure. You know, like, so it's pretty cool to to have that going on. Yeah. You still, so that's the atmosphere is you're, you know, you're going through these hot sections and people are running various paces and you kind of like, you kind of have to look at the color of their race number as they go by. Cause they all have different colors and the hundred milers have white, white bibs. And you like, you're like, Oh my God, why is that person running so fast? Are they, they're, they're not a hundred miler. Are they? No. Okay. They're only doing 50. Okay, good. Okay. They're only doing 32. That's fine. I'm okay. But yeah. And then, yeah, you're just, we're climbing until, yeah, mile 87, 88 is the last bit of climbing. And then you're just sort of in this open valley that just keeps going down for, I think, 4,000 feet. Like kind of painfully down at that point or at a, at a more gentle slope where you're like, this is cool. I like this. Hardly ever did I like it. And I just keep searching the for the trail to go over like a rollover that you can, and you just like, you're like, where's this aid station, this last aid station before, (laughs) you know, and uh, like time stretches out for sure for me there. I'm like, God, this is just going on forever. And it's, there's nothing, literally nothing you can do mentally or physically that will take care of it. So you just kind of keep moving. You're like, 
You're like, I can't eat anything that will make me happy. I can't think of anything that can make me happy. Like you can distract yourself sort of for a few minutes, but so yeah, sometimes you'll be like, oh, okay, 10 minutes just went by, you know, but I don't have any techniques for it other than to just keep plodding along. And, you know, I know it's frustrating for somebody who's pacing you, who you usually, I run with Jason a lot and like, oh yeah, we'd totally be running this. We'd bomb down this hill and like, you know, running like eight minute, nine minute miles if we were fresh. But right now I can't even, you know, run because it's like, it's pretty dangerous for me. Um, so yeah, it's like the last 12 hours is really, I kept thinking of my friend, Sean McCoy, who he runs, uh, he's the editor at Gear Junkie. And I talked to him last year after he did the Leadville 100 for the first time. And it was his second hundred mile race. And he just said something to the effect of, you know, I don't think I need to run a hundred miles again. <laughs> and I just kept thinking of him saying that, like that was just going through my head for, for a good 10 hours. You know, I don't know if I need to do this again ever. <laughs> um, but then, you know, eventually you get to the bottom of this hill and the last five miles are on a dirt road that goes into the town of Dayton, Wyoming, and it ends at a park in, in Dayton. And I thought, oh, okay, good. We'll just, I think I'll be able to jog those five miles. It'll be this flat dirt road. And since we're in the mountains right now, it should be slightly downhill all the way into town. Well, it's not really. It's just kind of like, it's kind of like, feels like it's mostly slightly uphill with a couple little slightly downhill sections. And I think uh, Jason ended up feeling pretty bad too. And he's like, I said something to him at like two miles into this five mile section going, you know, man, ideal me would try to run this and get it done in a a few minutes faster, but I just can't, I just, I'm not doing it. I'm just not motivated. And he goes, well, I'm not very motivated (laughs) to run either. And we just walked and, uh, somebody's house, they have set up this, uh, they have a boom box in the yard playing the two songs I heard as we were cruising by were, uh, chariots of fire theme and the Rocky theme song, you know, and these encouraging signs and everything. And, you know, everyone's finishing at this time, you know, so everyone in every single race. So you come running through and, you know, we get to the actual town and we're like, okay, we can run the last, whatever it is, like half mile into the finish line. And yeah, they usher you across the highway and you run in you run to the finish line and, and it's over and Jesus Christ, you know, like I have never had, like I, my feet hurt more during this race than I, any of these, any race I've ever done. And my knees, like I sat down in a chair afterwards and was like, God, I just actually need to have my knees be straight or I'm going to be really miserable. So you run across the finish line. Do you like burst into tears? Are you actually happy at this point? Are you just emotionally numb and eviscerated? Like which of those three options feels closer to reality? I think it's just relief for me. I don't really get, I get sort of sad in the dark or in the morning and like the last 12 hours, but I'm not like, I mean, you're doing it to yourself, you know, and I'm, I don't have any emotions other than that at the finish. I'm just kind of like, geez, check that shit off. (laughs) Finally, I'm done. I don't have to do it again. Like I was started thinking of like how much someone would have to pay me to do that same race the next day, like starting the next morning. And like, man, would I do that for a million dollars? Yeah, I might do it for a million dollars. Would I do it for like a hundred thousand? I don't know. Would I do it? I definitely wouldn't do it for $10,000 the next day. But uh, yeah, just relief. And then you're like, okay, now what do I do? I get to do all those things that I 
was thinking about doing, like sitting down <laughs> and not running and like, you know, Hillary brought a pizza and, and some, some Cinnabon. Hey, sit down, eat pizza and you're good, you know? And then it's, it's a battle to try to get more calories in before you just pass out. Like, but yeah, I didn't, relief, I guess. And I think people have different reactions for sure. You know, like I think I'm maybe emotionally detached, but I think that is a really emotional spot for a lot of people for sure. Like, I mean, that's a huge thing. It's a huge 36 hours or 34 hours or however long of just moving constantly. You go through some, you go through some ups and downs mentally for sure. I had such a good time reading the homepage of the website for the Bighorn 100. I props to whoever wrote that because I thought it was great. But um, you know, one of the lines in there is they say, "We are guests in God's country, so expect to share the course with elk, deer, moose, black bear, mountain lions, and rattlesnakes in the lower elevations." You have not mentioned wildlife. Oh, we we saw one rattlesnake and I saw a mouse and that was all <laughs> okay. I saw. But apparently a lot of times there's a ton of elk up there and a ton of moose. Like people were talking about like seeing like, and I, I ran with a couple of local guys at the beginning for, or hiked basically uphill. And they definitely, they train there. So they've seen a lot of wildlife up there. But yeah, I just didn't, didn't see any, which, which is nice. You know, like I don't really want to run into a moose at like three in the morning and have to navigate that as another problem, you know, and like not get chased by a moose. That's, that's pretty, pretty cool. Not having that happen. And I, I've heard, I mean, this is maybe one of the best things and or worst things, depending on how you look at it about being like a front runner in a race, perhaps a lot more wildlife spotting opportunities. But if some folks have kind of set that course and cleared the path for you, probably is going to reduce the number of uh, wildlife spottings. Oh, for sure. I'm, I'm like at least 120th person to go through there, you know. And yeah, I, I wonder if that's one of the weird things about being in front. Like, listen, this is a question I will never know, but like I would be, I've had some pretty close calls with rattlesnakes and I would not want that to happen. But I, thankfully, I don't usually have to worry <laughs> about that because everyone is faster. <laughs> but even like like the mud, you know, they've navigated. Hopefully people have tromped down a, a path through the snow a little bit, stuff like that. You're like kind of nice to be last or in the middle of the pack or whatever. Uh, also from the Bighorn website, they say the Bighorn 100 is one of the classics demanding you to reach deep down to your core of mental and physical fortitude. Sounds like you might say true that. I mean, me personally. Yeah. I mean, I think the drop rate of a hundred and I haven't done extensive statistics on this but i think it's usually around 35 to 40 percent and it was something like 47 percent this year and that was with the extra hour and i think something i think it was about 30 some people or 20 some people finished in that extra hour they gave us so i don't know if the course was harder than previous years i don't know as someone who had run it many years in a row would have to say that but it's man I, I got my money's worth for sure and I, I was looking at this as being I thought I did the the hellbender 100 in North Carolina in April and that was 24,000 feet of elevation gain with a 
it was a 40 hour cutoff. And I thought, wow, there's no way the bighorn can be, it'll, I was like, I wasn't thinking, oh, it'll be a walk in the park, but I thought it can't be that hard. It can't be as hard as the hellbender. And I got, you know, I got served pretty hard. So wait, let's, let's pause on that for a sec. So if you're saying kind of, I mean, granted conditions change and there's a lot of variables here, but in your, the experience of your race of the hellbender 100 versus the bighorn 100, which did you think was harder or equally difficult just in different ways? How would you assess that? Yeah. Well, I had blisters in the hellbender too, which were really, really painful for the last eight hours. So that's, that sort of colors my take on it. Yeah. And it does, it does have mathematically more elevation gain than the bighorn, but boy, I, I got, I did, I finished the bighorn almost four hours faster. So I don't know <laughs> who knows, man, this stuff is all, it's all subjective <laughs> and there's no way you can be like, this is harder than that one, or this is harder than that one. And I don't know. I'm glad I don't have to do it again next week. That's for sure. So this is either the best time to ask this question or the worst time. But you talked about your friend who'd said, right? Like, yeah, I'm not sure I need to run a hundred miles again. Are you currently in the spot of like, yeah, I don't know why I would ever run a hundred again. Or are you like, I'm starting to kind of figure this out or yes, I know it's hard and people listening to this, it's like, this sounds real grueling, but are you kind of more into the idea of doing this less into it? Or is it simply like you definitely cannot be asking me this right now? Uh, yeah, I think the way Sean said it is pretty good. (laughs) I'm like, I, I feel, I feel good until 70 miles and there's a lot of cool things you could do that are that long. And it's really logistically like more difficult with you. For me, I feel like I need someone to come crew me at a hundred and like someone to pace me. So there's like those variables and like a hundred K or 50 mile race, like, you know, those are easier to do. And I feel like that's a really fun length of time to be out and you're done in a day, no matter what, pretty much. So it's funny you think about, oh, this person is a professional runner or a professional ultra runner. And the distance that everyone focuses on or seems to focus on is the hundred, which is sort of all these other things that aren't really running like sleep deprivation. Um, I guess if you're fast, you're finishing in less than 24 hours, but for the rest of us, the normal folks, it's like you're going an entire night without sleep, which brings in this whole other thing. Like it's the most physically tired I've ever been. These, the three hundreds I've done where I've like sat down and immediately fall asleep. So I don't know. I'm like, am I learning anything new by being this miserable for the additional 12 hours? Like, is this something that I'm gaining something from? And I'm, I don't know. I'm not sure. I'm not sure that I need to do more research in that, in that department, you know? So there's other cultural experiences you can have in the running world that are not as ridiculous. Um, Because right now I feel like I can do a 50-mile race, like, with my training. I can kind of, like, I could sign up for one in three weeks and be like, okay, I could be okay doing this, you know. But 100 is like if somebody said, hey, we have a free spot open at this marquee 100-mile race in a month, I'd be like, I don't know about that. 
I'm just like, maybe don't need to put my wife through hmm. that again. <laughs> <So>. <laughs> or Jason. Yeah, because they, they do like it's a lot of standing around like with this race, they're out in the middle of nowhere and they have no way of tracking you really. Um, they're kind of like, OK, so he's going to be in sometime between 3 a.m. and 7 a.m. And like your buddies there, like in running shorts, like, OK, I'm ready to go. I got out of bed at 2.30 and ate breakfast. Maybe in another hour I'll eat breakfast again because I don't know when I'm going to take off here. And and then all of a sudden you come in, they're like, okay, hurry up. Let's take care of this person and get them moving on their way. And so it's sort of ridiculous. <laughs> and I just, you like, it's asking a lot of people to, to help you through that. It seems so obvious, but it's, I think I was losing sight of it a bit. It's like, if you're going this far, it, you, it brings in all of these other elements and variables that just actually aren't related to running. It's certainly related to endurance and perseverance, but not running. And I had a conversation with Stevie Kramer and it was really interesting to me. She's like, my wheelhouse is being out for three to four hours. And I thought that's really interesting. And when you say we are kind of in a bit of a culture, I think, where we understandably, but we are valorizing maybe the hundred mile thing or the ultra ultra. And it's like, yeah, I mean, there's a lot of interesting things and incredible feats and accomplishments happening at various distances. And uh, maybe we shouldn't be losing sight of that. So that makes me feel a lot better about the 45-minute run that I did last night uh, here in Crested Butte. I will say my entire run happened between 9,000 and 10,000 feet. So that's pretty, you know, I'm pretty badass <laughs> and and then I, you know, immediately got home and ate some food. And um, so I survived those 45 minutes uh, with style. <laughs> yeah. I mean, congratulations. Thanks, That's, uh, yeah. <laughs> I appreciate that. I mean, you just talked a whole hour about, you know, your last running endeavor. I figured I should, you know, 30 seconds about mine. Yeah. Were there, were there, <laughs> were there any low points? Actually, there were. Yep. Yeah, there were. I'm not, I'm not a good distance guy. So, uh. It's real humbling when you're like, man, I've barely been running. I've barely been running. And like, I don't want to run up this hill right now. So um, it's sad and pathetic, but it's true. I just think ultra running is the practice of making yourself run when you don't want to, like no matter what the distance is, you know, I guess even just any trail running is, you know, like, because I don't want to at two miles and I also don't want to at 90 <laughs> miles, you know, and 45 and whatever. And you just kind of like, all right, let's keep moving, you know, and you believe in the the practice or the process enough that something good will happen or, or whatever. It's interesting. We're all at different points along the journey. And uh, I think I'm, I'm very happy that you have been doing this work and these experiments and I appreciate you uh, sharing your story and uh, kind of a recap of this event and uh, yeah you know once again congratulations for uh, coming across that finish line it was very heroic <laughs> and you know there's a whole lot of other people who are grinding it out too which is it's a really it's a really interesting it's really interesting to see how many normal people, normal looking people are just like out there just hammering it out. And like, yeah, they're not super, we're not all super athletes. We're just normal people with the exact same mental issue where we want to do these things. 
Well, props to all of the participants of the Bighorn 100 and 50 and 32 and 18. Did did I get that right? Yes, you did. And uh, man, it is a big deal to uh, sign up and show up and start all of those things. Um, you you all are amazing. So, but hey, man, good luck on the river for the next couple of weeks. We'll look forward to catching up with you when you get back from that. Yeah. Awesome. Thanks, dude. All right, man. Talk to you soon. All right. Bye-bye. That's it for this edition of Off the Couch. Thanks to Brendan for the conversation and to Luke Alley for producing this episode. And thanks to you for listening. If you like what you've been hearing so far, we would very much appreciate it if you would leave us a nice rating or review in iTunes, share this episode with your friends, or leave us a comment in the show notes to this episode on Blister to let us know what you think. Until next time, keep moving forward, and we will talk to you again next week.